Yes, it's the place to be for all things franchising. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Um, today's topic is, uh, is an exciting one. We're talking here about what we call the gift of disaster. It's amazing how when things go wrong, you can actually gain so much, so much benefit from it. And we're going to hear from a, a very, very interesting speaker I've got today. So I'd suggest you pin your ears back. Make sure you've got pencil and pen and paper, and uh, let's get into it. So just give you a bit of background of Chris Robb. Chris is someone I met a while ago. We have a bit of common background, I suppose, in as much as he was born in Zimbabwe and I spent a little bit of time there many years ago. He's a veteran of the mass participation sports industry, um, which is fairly unique. Um, he's uh, built businesses in Australia and Singapore, uh, been involved in the industry for some 30 years. He's CEO of a company called Mass Participation Australia, which he, um, Asia, which he founded. And he's the author of Mass Participation Sports Events. Apart from consulting to um, events, brands, and governments on mass participation IP, Chris is an avid speaker at conferences, a mentor for other business owners and entrepreneurs through the Key Persons of Influence program, which you've probably heard of. He, um, he became, um, I suppose, one of his uh, key achievements was being invited to work on the Sydney Olympics. He was involved in organizing the road events, and uh, he then subsequently organized uh, the Singapore Marathon, 55,000 runners. So we're talking serious events here, and he's an avid cyclist and, and sports person all round. He sold his business to Ironman in 2016 and uh, now has a range of, of areas that he's interested in. He's also passionate about um, Free to Shine, a Cambodian charity that helps prevent sex trafficking of young lady, young women. So um, the amazing statistic that I have for Chris, which is rather a one-off, is the, the fact that he's seen over one million participants cross the finish line safely in his career. Chris, that's an amazing background you have. Welcome. It's so kind of you to come along. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Uh, wonderful to be here. Uh, you know, re really exciting to be able to share some of my incredible journey which I've just been so fortunate to have uh, with so many different learnings and so many incredible experiences over my 30 years in, in the industry and uh, you know I think for, for me if, if I can share some of those stories that might benefit some of your listeners in, in their business or personal life um, absolutely well worth spend, spending some time chatting about them. Per perfect and I really appreciate that. Um, now just to go back to the beginning, really, I mean, you were born in Zimbabwe or Rhodesia, as it would have been then. Um, what, what was it like for you living in that part of the world at that time? Look, it was, it was amazing. I mean, I had a, had a wonderful uh, upbringing in, in many ways. I grew up on a farm uh, initially in, in a place called Norton, just outside Harare, which you, you may well know from your time there. Um, and, and when I was about... Um, it, it, nearly 11, we moved to Matari, which was on the eastern border, with a couple of objectives in mind from mum and dad. They wanted to get us into a, a good school that was uh, well-renowned from a high school perspective there and, 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 and to, to be able to go to Mozambique, to particularly Baira, to spend more time at the sea. Zimbabwe, for those that, that don't know it, landlocked, and um, you know, I didn't see the sea for the first time until I think I was eight or nine. Um, and, and, and no sooner had we moved to Zimbabwe than the independence war escalated and the farm that we were living on about 20 kilometers out of town ended up, um, we, we first had kind of sandbags in front of our window and then chain mesh fence thing and then 
I think by the time I was about 14, I used to sleep with a gun next to my, my bed. And then dad used to walk up the about one and a half kilometers from our front gate to the, to the bitumen to check that landmines hadn't been laid overnight. And, and, and that, you know, I, I've told that story a few times. Um, you know, it sounds very dramatic to, to people that didn't experience it. But I guess as, as kids, we knew no different. I guess with the benefit of hindsight, it taught me many amazing skills. I think it taught me resilience. It taught me uh, adaptability. Um, it taught me the, the real importance of friendship and mateship. You know, by the end of the war, I remember sitting very clearly in my A-level geography class listening to uh, the result of the election. And, and in, the, in the period immediately before that, um, you know, probably the year before that, there would barely be a week that would go by where we wouldn't hold a minute silence for a former pupil that had, had died in service of the country. Um, so, you know, it really taught you the, the, the importance of, uh, you know, spending time with your mates, um, uh, the importance of mateship itself and, and making the most of life. Uh, so, you know, while some people would look at it and say, wow, that was terrible. What a way to grow up. You know, I think there's many kids these days that grow up in way, way worse circumstances than that. And, and it taught me so many great skills gave me so many great gifts that laid a, a foundation for the the career that I've had. Extraordinary, yeah. So, so that's um, that's really really fascinating to hear that because, as you say, it's a different perspective. So, you you moved to Australia. Perhaps you can give me a little bit of background about that. What was the what was behind moving to Australia? How did that evolve? Yeah, I I, I went from from Zimbabwe to South Africa to university and then was lucky enough to do uh, about four years of travel and based up mainly out of the UK and, uh, and, and various other parts of the world. But uh, towards the end of my first year away, I, I went to Australia for the first time and absolutely loved it, fell in love with it literally within minutes of, of getting there um, and spent, I think it was nearly three months. Uh, I'm a sports nut, obviously, and it was kind of, land in Sydney, catch the bus to Melbourne for the Melbourne Cup to link up with some mates of mine from my, my days in London and then uh, on to Adelaide for, for the Grand Prix and up to Brisbane for, for the first test against the West Indies and, and many other great sporting events and, and, and just wonderful experiences. Uh, a lot of the time with, with great friends that I'd made during my, my time in, in the UK and in Europe. And, and, and absolutely just fell in love with it and vowed that I would go back there. When I'd left Zimbabwe on that trip, I'd, I'd vowed that I would go back and, 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 and get into the, the, the kind of farming lifestyle. By then, mom and dad had very quickly recognized way before me of where the country was heading. In fact, in my second year at university, they packed up. Both of them had been born in, in, in England and, and gone out to Rhodesia as, as it was as young kids. Um, so they went back, but I'd always harbored this dream that I would go back and work on a farm in Zimbabwe, albeit that mom and dad had sold their farm. Um, ultimately, after that first year of travel, realized that Australia was where I wanted to end up, and I sold up everything, traveled for a, a few years more, and immigrated to Australia in, I, I think it was about 1983 or somewhere thereabouts, and um, I think I arrived with about... $40,000 in my pocket, something like that, $30,000 or $40,000 in my pocket. And six months after arriving, I set up um, a business called uh, Sporting Spectrum, as it was in those days, uh, which ultimately grew to, to a company called Spectrum Worldwide. And um, 
I guess followed followed the dream of setting up my own business, making an impact on on people's lives as these mass participation events do, and um, you know very very quickly settled in Australia. In you know in in the first couple of years, I was working two and three jobs, which is the wonderful opportunity that Australia gives people. You know, there's plenty of work if you're prepared to look for it. And you know, I was working by day as a as a kind of a builder's assistant. By night, I was uh, I was waitering in the Kirribilli RSL with these incredible, beautiful views over Sydney Harbour. Hmm. Um, I was working in a petrol station at times, and 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 then you know very quickly started running running my business from the the spare room of the apartment that I was renting. Classic, <laughs> I love it. So so um, it, it is it is fascinating because it is a, an industry I think very very few people are. Even probably even aware of really, they don't think behind the background. You know, they might go for a jog or they go to the to the city to surf or something like that. So, can you tell me what you've learned through that process and some of the the disasters you've had to manage? Because that's uh, I think that's where the learnings have come from talking to you before. Yeah, look, it's been amazing. I mean, you know, I've gone, you know, from extreme weather. We had a, an, an event in in Singapore for for JP Morgan, which was ultimately the company that took helped me take my business to Asia. So we used to run an event called the JP Morgan Corporate Challenge in Centennial Park. Um, several thousand runners there on, on a Wednesday night, part of a global series. And we had gale force winds that came through and literally blew the event out. And we had to cancel it about an hour before it was to take place. It was just too unsafe in the park with flying limbs and Marquees and things being blown over. When I say flying limbs, limbs of limbs, limbs of trees, not limbs of people. <laughs> fortunately, um, and and you know, again, we 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 decided that we would try and restage it the next night, and and had to make the same same decision to to postpone it. But you know, even the learnings from day one to day two in terms of the communication. Um, the information that we shared with participants, the timeliness of that particip- of, of the, that information, and this was, you know, back in the days of, uh, you know, emails without, uh, you know, apps and websites and you know all, all those kind of things. It was, uh, you know, it was a different kind of communication, lots of um, SMS blasting and so on. So we we learned a, a, a huge amount in terms of the importance of the messaging that was going out, the timing of communication, which is. You know, even 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 many years later, is still when when we get into crisis communicating with clients, the the basic principles are, are still there. I've gone on to have um, my first event in Singapore with J.P. Morgan. Um, you know, so working in a completely new culture with uh, with, with, with with different understanding of the country, um, the, the the government requirements and so on we, we put on this event which was literally closing down cbd roads in the heart of singapore at six o'clock on a wednesday night completely unprecedented we'd been working on the event for i think about eight months uh had well exceeded the expectations of the number of participants we would have i think we had about seven thousand participants and eight days before the event the one of the major highways the nickel highway collapsed they were building uh, what's, what's, was an extension of their already amazing MRT system and tragically four people lost their lives. And we sat for, for the, for the next seven and a half days unsure of whether we would even have an event. Uh, we, we went into crisis planning. We looked at all of our different contingencies, 
we finally got the green lights standing on a street corner of the route at, uh, at midnight the night before the event that we could go ahead with the event. And it was literally all hands on deck. We'd made a bunch of contingencies as far as even laying bitumen on, on a section of dirt road that we thought might be able to be an alternative route. Um, done a whole bunch of, um, you know, communication plans, all hands on deck to get all of the infrastructure in place. We continued to put some infrastructure in place, but stopped with others. We ended up getting approval for our original course and, you know, literally put the last screw into, into one of the ramps that would be taking, taking runners from one road into a parkland area, probably about an hour before the race uh, flagged off. Um, and yeah, huge amount of pressure. Was standing later that evening on the Padang, which is probably not dissimilar um, in terms of an analogy to the domain in, in Sydney. Looking at the beautiful city skyline, watching the, uh, the the prize presentation on the stage, and got a tap on my shoulder to turn around and see my medical director standing there, who'd come to tell me that one of the participants had died of a heart attack. So we then went into crisis committee and all sorts of planning for, for all hours of the night, understanding from my perspective of, of, of how you support a family in, in the Asian culture when someone passes away. And we're so fortunate to have, um, I guess, the guidance of very senior people from JP Morgan. So, you know, the regional CEO who was based in Hong Kong, people that were there from New York who taught me so much about crisis communication, how you communicate, when you communicate, um, the, the management of, you know, working with and supporting the family. And, and, and interestingly, the, the story never even made it into the newspaper. Um, it was, uh, you know, all of the planning that was put in place, the, the, the talking points that were developed, um, the, the responses, we built up a whole range of Q&As uh, to answer all the different questions that we might receive from the media. It, it, it never even it even made it into the media. Uh, but, but the learnings in terms of working with those people, the pressure testing of a new team that I'd put in place. So, you know, coming to Singapore, found a, a manager for my business and a team of staff, the hundreds of volunteers that we had working on the event, uh, the opportunities of uh, that you know that that they gained from being able to work in such an intense pressurized environment that stood the business in in, in great stead as it, as it evolved was just amazing. Absolutely, um, sorry, carry on, Chris. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, so 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 that as you say, pretty extraordinary. And and you know, at the end of it was just absolutely physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausted um, from, from, from all of it. But, you know, in, in the weeks and months and years later, I was constantly able to go back and, 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 and bring back the, these learnings that I'd gained from that experience. So, so, so what we're hearing now, I suppose, is moving into the next step is, as you just uh, intimated, it's what you've managed to gain and benefit from that what would have been a dreadful experience, as you say, incredible pressure and stress at the time of those disasters. Um, so from, from that point of view, what, what you, could you summarise your key learnings as to what you think they've been? Yes, I think probably one of the, the best learnings is what I call the power of pause. So often in life when we get hit 
with a, a challenging circumstance, whether it be you know much lesser than some of the disasters that I've shared, uh, or, or or even you know significant disasters in our in our personal and business life, the tendency often is to kind of race in and 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 come up with a, a solution and 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 solve the problem and move forward without taking a step back and and really saying well. You know, what is it that I need to do here? What really is the problem? Analyzing the problem. And, you know, that might be, you know, in the case of a, of a paramedic, that might be milliseconds or a couple of seconds to assess the situation before moving forward. Sometimes it's a few minutes. Sometimes you have the luxury of a few hours and, and, and sometimes it might be a few days or even a week. We had a, a situation in, in, in Malaysia where we had a, a phone call from the police five weeks before an event that we were putting on a huge cycling event in the heart of Kuala Lumpur. And the police called us to say that they had intelligence that there was going to be a political demonstration on the same weekend as our event, and we needed to postpone our event. So we said, oh, okay, we understand. We, you've got a challenge. We've got a challenge. Let's work together. And, you know, I think that's one of the real keys as well is, is partnership and collaboration. And, and, and sharing of challenges and, and responsibilities. So we worked very collaboratively with them. And they said, but hold on. They said, this is only intelligence. You, you can't announce anything yet. You can't go to your participants and tell them that the event's being postponed because you're not going to have a legitimate reason. It's not in the public domain, and, and you have to sit tight. So we were forced to pause for... I think it was another seven or eight days before the story eventually broke in the media. And it was just before Christmas. Our event was going to be, I think it was on about the 14th or 15th of January. Um, and we lost what we initially thought we lost in inverted commas, a critical week. But with the benefit of hindsight, that week gave us time to really pause, to really analyze the plan that we were putting in place, recognizing that we had participants who'd booked flights and accommodation, we're flying in from the region. We had to check that venues were available, what other, what other events we might be clashing with. And I'm almost convinced that if we kind of knee-jerked and communicated within 24 or 48 hours, which we probably would have, we would have got elements of it wrong. So certainly the power of pause, absolutely critical. Communication with your staff, with your stakeholders, and those are multiple and varied. And so there's very different levels of communication with, with, with the people that you're, you're communicating with, whether that be sponsors, whether it be the participants, whether it be the general public that's going to be impacted by these events. So you, you imagine, you know, in the case of the Singapore Marathon, for example, we have 55,000 participants, 5,000 volunteers, and, 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 and people all over the city that are being impacted. Um, you know, shop owners, people that are going to weddings, people that are going about their normal daily Sunday routine. So if you were to have a delay of an event of that nature, the communication that you have to have with such a vast number of people has to be very, very clearly thought through, uh, a, a very clear plan put in place and resource to be able to deal with it. So, you know, communication within the circle and without the circle and, and even within the circle, I find that you know, you sometimes have to be a little bit circumspect of who you communicate with. So, for example, the, 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 the um, political demonstration scenario, we chose 
not to communicate with one or two people that we were concerned may leak the information before it was ready to be communicated. So we, you know, we were very conscious of, you know, this is what we're going to do. We bring a number of people into the tent, so to speak. And then when the plan was made, we then went to those couple of people that had been left out and said, we need to let you know this is going to happen. This is what the plan is. And, and, and this is how, how we're going to move forward. The plan itself, so you know, more often than not, you have a plan, every business has a plan, every event has a plan. You, you, you pull out the plan, you, you have a look at that plan, and, and then you decide what your course of action is going to be. You maybe bring the people into the tent, as I alluded to. Um, you discuss with them what you believe the course of action, and then you, you need to, I guess, recalibrate that plan. You know, So a sponsor might come back and say, look, you know, the date that you've proposed is impossible for us because we've got another huge event on you. We, we need to go on a different date. Um, you know, you might discover that uh, the route has an impact on it, that there's another huge event on and you have to change the route. So that plan in collaboration needs to be recalibrated to, 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 to come back with, uh, with, with an appropriate plan for the revised and, and new circumstances. Um, I, I think empowerment is always a crucial one, particularly in, in, the, in the size of these events that we put on. So using the Singapore Marathon again as an example, 5,000 employees that need to, uh, sorry, 5,000 volunteers and, and employees combination uh, and suppliers uh, that need to be recruited, that need to be trained, that need to be deployed, and they spread over you know, a 42-kilometer course. In the case of the marathon, it's a festival, so we had three different starts across the city. The marathon started in Orchard Road, which many people will know. The half marathon started on Sentosa Island, and the 10K, 10K event started in the heart of the city. So you've got all these staff spread across a massive area. If you don't have the right plan in place, which I've discussed, you're in trouble from the start. But if you don't have the right mindset to empower those people to be able to make the decisions that they need to make on the ground when the scenarios involved, and then also have the right communication and support system to be able to help them and advise them in the event of difficult situations, you're in trouble as well. So, you know, impossible for a leader that wants to hold on to, to everything to be able to make every decision and manage manage everything in, 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 in that scale of an event. But needing to be there to to support the different levels of, of the, the event and the organization in the event of a crisis. So we we would typically have um, four levels of, of escalation. So at, at level four on the ground the thousands of people empowered to make decisions in the roles that they were at, whether that might be a course marshal, someone working on an aid station, someone on a baggage collection point, someone at a finish line. Uh, the, the, the next level up, level three, would be the people that were managing those individual functional areas or groups. In the case of the, the route, for example, it was divided into multiple sectors and you had leaders in each of those sectors. And then that would come up to a command centre where we would have 
probably 50 different functional areas represented from, uh, you know, all, all of your staff to your police, your um, traffic authorities, your various different suppliers um, that were in the room, your key barricade suppliers, your medical suppliers, and so on that would be in the room. Um, and then I, as the event director, would would, would sit in, 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 in that centre, but really looking over the shoulder of those people in the event of whatever crisis it was, and some of those would be relatively minor in the scheme of them things. Others would be, you know, potentially evacuating an unconscious near-to-death person in a cycling event, as was what occurred on one occasion, watching the weather situation as it unfolded, if there was a lightning threat or something along those lines. But again, you know, all those people would be empowered. They would have been trained. We spend many, many hours doing what we call tabletop exercises where we would literally get key people into a room and we would role play all sorts of different scenarios, um, you know, deaths, um, guests of honours, government ministers arriving late, weather implications, um, evacuation routes for all different sectors of, of the route. So if someone went down in this particular area, where was the closest area that we would be able to evacuate them? And we would throw scenarios over a couple of a couple of hours with people with with radios, almost like it was live. So if a crisis hit, the people would 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 kind of almost subconsciously be saying, "Well, we rehearsed this, albeit not exactly the same situation, but we rehearsed this in the tabletop that we did." Um, and 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 so it made it a lot easier to deal with. Um, at, at, at that time. And then if it was, you know, really extreme, it would come up to level one where we would call a crisis committee and, you know, we would then bring in title sponsor, various different senior CEOs from, from government agencies and so on. And we would sit in a huddle and that might be if someone had died or if an event had to be postponed or there was a bomb threat or, or anything along those lines. Um, but, you know, as I say, coming back to the key point that I made without empowerment, very much impossible for an event of that magnitude to, to run smoothly. Gee, I can see numerous comparisons here where the experiences you've had and the conclusions you've drawn with some of those key aspects would apply to in, in business as well, obviously, in other aspects of life. So if we're talking about organisations and you know, businesses changing their brands, for example, um, major changes to elements of the way the business is run, maybe different operations, maybe mergers and acquisitions, um, where they're moving into new territories or new countries. Th these things all have implications and there's all similar issues ne needed. So your, your comment about the power of pause, I think that's so powerful. Um, and, and then that partnership and collaboration, um, is, is something that, uh, often with the, with businesses, people aren't good at doing that, at doing that delegation you refer to that's so important at a high level. Um, so the communications, aren't really done as well as they could be with stakeholders. So people are running around saying, what's happening, what's happening? Uh, we see it so often. Um, uh, and then I'll follow through your comment about running through those tabletop role plays. I think that's something that is, a, is an exercise that could be applied in lots of cases. So I'm totally absorbed in this. I've got two pages of notes already, Chris, but it's not, it's not my interview. So please, let me hand back to you. <laughs> Look, I, th I think you're absolutely right, and you know that's what I'm finding so exciting now as I'm, I'm moving into into this next phase of of my career. I, you know, I've been 
I guess, fairly industry-centric for a while, and, and I'm, I'm loving the opportunity to share these stories with people from different businesses and at different levels. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, the, the feedback that I'm getting is very insightful right up to the CEO level. It, it's inspirational for young students and, 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 um, uh, and, and uh, pupils to, to be able to hear the stories of how, you know, the, the tough times present great opportunities for us to learn. And I think, you know, picking up on the point that you made about businesses expanding, uh, you know, one of the wonderful things that I've learned, not just from crisis, but from, from having the opportunity to be in Asia now for, for nearly 15 years is that, you know, from, from one country to another, you literally drive across a border and, and, and the culture can be so different. So the value of partnership and, and appropriate local partners is, it just can't be, can't be understated. And, and, and I see it, you know, the biggest mistakes that, so many businesses make is 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 come into Asia and 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 think that what works in their country is going to work in Asia um, and and and, it, and and I'm sure it's the same you know the reverse is true you know Asian people going into into other parts of the world and, and thinking the way that it works in their country is going to work in that other country but certainly the the value of of partnership understanding each other's objectives understanding each other's cultural differences and respecting them is, is, is absolutely invaluable. And I, I've learned so much and still continue to learn so much uh, in, in that space. Collaboration, yes. I, I brings to mind two major franchise groups in Australia where I've interviewed their CEOs and, and they both had major issues. One going to the UK and, 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 and assuming that there wouldn't be any issue having an Australian general manager. They basically left to sort of not run wild, but follow, I suppose, the, the culture that Australia has, and we, we forget how different it is. So that to them actually ended up with them pulling up sticks and leaving. Um, and someone who went to America and had a similar experience, they realised they need to get, you know, some really good calibre people from their industry, from that country, to be involved. So that reinforces that collaboration. Uh, local partners is, is just so essential. Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I created a concept a number of years ago, um, started with a, with an event called Cycle Singapore, um, which went on to be, you know, 11 and a half thousand people cycling through the, the hearts of, of Singapore in a, in a sort of a three day festival. And we then took that to Malaysia and, and I then licensed it in, in the Philippines to an amazing organization there. And, and, and they ended up putting on two events a year, which, which were hugely successful. Um, and, and, you know, some of the learnings you talk about cross-cultural. So standing on the start line in Malaysia the first year that we delivered it, that was my first venture into Malaysia in, 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 in any sporting event. And what happens in Australia and what happens in, in, in Singapore is that traditionally before you fire the starting gun or blow the horn or however you, you start your race, you get a call from your course director to tell you that the course is locked down in inverted commas, that your, your, your route is closed, it's safe, there's no cars on it, all the road closures are in place. In, in, in Malaysia, they work in, in that, at that particular stage, they work very differently that they put what we call rolling closures in place. So they had all these police escort motorbikes that would go ahead of the, you know, literally a couple of minutes ahead of the, of, of the lead, the lead cyclists and close the roads down, much like you would see, uh, a presidential cavalcade go through a, through a city with all the escort motorbikes. 
And, you know, we delayed the start by 10 minutes because my course director couldn't give me the green waiting waiting to, 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 to start the event. And it's one of the, the most challenging times of any event and one of the most, um, what's the right grade, invigorating as you count down to that, that, that start off. You, you, you're waiting in two minutes to, to the start and one minute to the start. You're waiting for your course director to tell you that you're green and it can be pretty nerve-wracking, particularly if you've got an event that's going live on television to a global audience as the Singapore Marathon did. Um, and eventually, 10 minutes after the start, the police commander came up to me furiously and said, why haven't you started the event? Get the event going. I said, the road's not closed. He said, well, we're not closing the road that way. We're, you know, you start the event and go now. And, you know, it was an ultimatum. And, you know, that had been lost in translation in all the planning and there'd been months and months of planning. Sure enough, the, the event went ahead and, um, you know, fundamentally unscathed. Uh, you know, there were certainly challenges. There were massive traffic jams. And incredible learnings. You know, we we kind of come in maybe a little bit cockily in terms of, you know, this is how we should do it, this is how we do it, and they say, no, this is how, how we do it. And we had this great meeting of the minds afterwards, and, and in our debriefs we were able to to share each other's point of view and, and, and able to help create some, I guess, precedents moving forward, which has benefited us and, and the industry generally in terms of the way that, road closures are managed, which was kind of a combination of, of both. But that was that whole understanding each other's culture, recognizing um, each other's objectives, um, and, and, and finding a mutually beneficial win-win situation out of it. And then, you know, moving to the Philippines, a, a, an absolutely wonderful partner there who, who was very experienced in the space um, and, and, and still remember, you know, in, in the first year, um, had very optimistically decided to put on a, a, a significantly long uh, course through the heart of Manila, and for anyone who's been to Manila, that you know the traffic there can be absolutely horrendous, and, and the jams can be huge. And, and I remember I was in the in the lead car of this event with cyclists thundering behind me um, at significant speeds, and you know we were coming across traffic on the road, and, and I literally blew the fuse on the hooter of the car because it literally overheated. I was literally constantly hooting the hooter and, and, and you know, three quarters of the way into the event, um, the, the hooter just wouldn't work anymore. <laughs> Somehow we got through and, you know, again, we sat down in partnership. We all, you know, took, took the learnings from it and we found a, a middle ground compromise and this event went on to grow from strength to strength and I had the amazing opportunity in subsequent years to actually participate in the event as a cyclist and it was quite incredible to you know ride down these fundamentally open roads we still had a, a few little glitches along the way but on one end of the of, of, of it you had these open roads with thousands of cyclists on it on the other other end you had this bumper to bumper traffic with people going nowhere but generally still cheerily waving and clapping you on and blowing their horns as the cyclists went by. So just just wonderful experiences, but wouldn't have happened without an understanding of each other's cultures and a partnership. So that brings me to reinforcing another thing there, which I think we all tend to overlook, and that's the, debrief, the debriefing afterwards that you mentioned, uh, to share those experiences and get a common understanding so that your, your planning can be improved even more um, in the, in the future, it's it's a really great point, uh, Brian, and, and and absolutely critical, and 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 it's it's really 
it's it's a little bit even more challenging in Asia because uh, you you need to do it in a way where people don't lose face. So they talk about anyone that's done business in Asia will have heard a lot about face. So you know, I always used to have an expression and 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 still use that expression, but but have to be more measured with it. Is you know, in in a debrief like that, it's egos at the door, and let's let's share our challenges uh, for the benefit of everyone to get a, a better event next time. But but in Asia, you need to be very very conscious, and and again, it depends a little bit across across Asia how, how you deal with that. But you know, being being very conscious, if you're not calling people out in front of in front of their their colleagues and making them lose face and be embarrassed in in a situation where something's gone wrong. Uh, but but certainly, you know, we we would literally, you know, the marathon is another example in Singapore. Generally, people would have very little sleep over a 48-hour period. But first thing Monday morning, i.e., 10 o'clock, we would we would have all the key people in a room, just doing a brain dump of of all of you know what went right, celebrating the wins, but more importantly, what you know what went wrong, and how can we how can we learn from it, and how can we move forward? And and the key is, and I see so often in in organisations, those kind of debriefs happen. Everyone then goes away and, you know, six months later, where's the report from that debrief we had and what formats it in? It's, you know, it's so crucial, A, to make sure that you've got the right people in the room uh, that are empowered to, to, to share the learnings and, and, and implement them, B, to be very clear on what the rules of engagement are within that environment. So, you know, again, the face saving and, uh, and, 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 and the aiming for, for the better, but C, so importantly, who's responsible for the report? What's the format that it's going to be in? And how's it going to be implemented? You know, is in our case, we had a, a detailed project plan and every year that would be updated with the learnings that we would have. But, it, you know, even then, sometimes I'd pick up a plan and it's like, so, you know, we discussed this last year and we've got the, the same problem that's occurred again. What can we learn from that? Why, why, why did we make the same, same mistake again? Which, you know, which sometimes can happen, especially under a, a pressure situation in, in an event. But they're really crucial to get those, those three right. I'm going to type some of these points up because I think there's some, some really, really uh, quite clear and simple lessons that you've outlined here. So re really appreciate that. Now, coming to the future, fast forwarding to 2017, in fact, 2016, you mentioned, um, and I've read that you sold your business last year to Ironman, huge organisation, and uh, and you subsequently, uh, you, you now live in Bali. Um, perhaps you could tell us the briefest amount, if you're able to, about selling your business in a, in a transaction like that and then what, what you're doing now Chris yeah it was a wonderful opportunity to to be able to sell what I'd built to a, a huge organization like Ironman certainly you know very very interesting from a, a negotiation process lots of learnings for me working with a with a big organization and as, as, a, as a smaller uh, you know a smaller business so I think you know being being very clear on what your outcomes are and what the objectives are that you're wanting to achieve. You know, one of the things for me is that I'd, I'd been in the industry for, for 25 years at that stage. I was somewhat burnt out and, uh, and really wanted to be in a position where I could exit immediately, uh, which, which I was able to do, uh, which was wonderful. And I think part of that was that I'd been successful in building a pretty strong team and, and delighted to say that, you know, just over a year on, 
that the bulk of my nearly 30 staff that that were taken over by Ironman um, are still employed by them. So, um, I, I, you know, I guess I take some credit for the fact that I've been able to assemble a good team and, and put a decent succession plan in that people were able to, to manage those functional areas, albeit that they brought in a fantastic CEO from Australia, actually, who's, who's very experienced in the industry and doing an amazing job of, of, of taking the business forward. Um, so, so that was, that was very exciting for me to be able to exit and be able to move with my, my wife, Tet, and my, my three-year-old son to, to Bali, uh, which we absolutely love. So, you know, a bit of a, a lifestyle decision, um, having, having grown up on a farm, one of the missing elements for me of, of, of Singapore was the open spaces and the outdoors. Um, and, and so we've got that in spades here in Bali. As you mentioned, I'm a, a passionate cyclist, so I do lots of wonderful cycling. In fact, two weekends ago, I had seven friends come over and eight of us cycled um, 400 kilometers in, in three days around Bali, which was uh, was absolutely stunning, beautiful scenery and amazing experiences with the, with the people in the villages that we were cycling through and so on. So it's a quite an incredible experience. And, and I'm now working on a, a number of, of wonderful things. So two years, well, nearly three years ago now in 2015, um, I, I launched a conference called Mass Participation Asia with the intention really of bringing the industry together, uh, promoting collaboration, uh, trying to establish some best practice. Our industry is, is quite fragmented. It's growing at a million miles an hour in Asia. Um, in, in many parts of the world, it has significant challenges um, in terms of, uh, you know, government approvals becoming more difficult, the well-documented global challenge of security issues becoming more and more important, uh, the, the, the cost implications of those on, on the business model, um, the untapped, what I believe is the fact that these events create a massive impact on, on the health of, of countries. Um, so from, you know, whether that be, uh, you know, general well-being, uh, people being more active, reduction in potential reduction in things like diabetes and heart disease, depression from people being being more active. And, and I think that very seldom do you see health ministries at the table. It's more often sport and tourism that support these events. So I'm excited about trying to get them engaged with the industry, getting the industry engaged in itself. And I'm in the process of taking that from an annual conference. We, we, we recently delivered the second edition in Bangkok following a crisis. So it was supposed to have been in, in, in November last year, but with the passing of the the King of Thailand, we had to postpone it by by five months to April. So there was a whole whole bunch of implications for that. But a hugely successful conference with uh, with 50 speakers from all over the world uh, and and over 150 delegates. And and I'm in the process of now building that out to year round engagement with the industry. So in in November, I'll be launching a weekly industry news bulletin called MPA News and, 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 and a number of education initiatives and, and, and really looking to, to engage the industry more. Uh, I'm doing some, some high impact consulting with, uh, with, with a number of different projects. Um, and, uh, and doing a bunch of mentoring, which, uh, which I love. Um, you know, young entrepreneurs and, and, and people involved in different spaces, spending time with them, um, sharing my experience and, and, and trying to help them with their careers where I can. 
uh, and hoping to write um, write my second book, which is aligned with uh, my gift of disaster, which you shared. So I'm doing more and more of the speaking of the gift of disaster. And, and the plan is that uh, in December this year, I'll start writing the gift of disaster book, sharing some of the stories that I've been telling you today. Fantastic. Chris, I, I was very fortunate to be in a small, fairly small uh, uh, group at a conference uh, recently where you gave a, your presentation on the gift of disaster and it was totally absorbing i must say so thank you for sharing so much today i really do appreciate it just in in wrapping up are there any last points you'd like to make that perhaps um, i haven't uh, haven't asked or that's occurred to you no thanks brian thanks for a wonderful opportunity and and, and thanks for your compliments on on the presentation it's just i i think really it's it's you know the every time we have a challenge i mean you know Disaster sounds dramatic, but, you know, paraphrase that for challenge. Uh, the opportunity for us is to take that as an obstacle or, or to, to, to step back and take it as, as an opportunity. And, and, and sometimes I find that the gift doesn't reveal itself for weeks, months, sometimes even years. Um, you know, I look back on, on some of these things. I, I try to live life with the adage that everything happens for a reason and 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 very often it's like oh my goodness why why am i getting smashed with this again smashed in inverted commas but uh you know you, 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 if, if if you choose to step back and say there is a silver lining here there is an opportunity i think we can all benefit in 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 our personal lives and our business lives from from looking for those opportunities and i'd encourage your listeners Life, life's full of challenges and, 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 and overcoming those challenges is the reward and, and the opportunity. If it was smooth, smooth sailing and, and, and sitting in the armchair all day long, I think the levels of satisfaction are massively diminished. And, and, and if we take a different mindset to accept that there's always going to be challenges and, and the opportunity to, to overcome those, to learn and grow, you know, like like diamonds that are created under extreme pressure, I think humans have the opportunity to to become diamonds if they absorb that pressure and 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 see it as as opportunities to grow and learn. I love that analogy. I'm going to use that with your permission. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Look, it's been a delightful experience talking talking with you, Chris. I really appreciate it and. Uh, we're all indebted to you for giving us so much of your time today. I'm sure everyone will join me and say it's been a privilege having the opportunity to get to know you. Really feel we have connected and hearing your, your words of wisdom. So uh, thank you very much again. And just like to say to everyone, I um, hope you've enjoyed it today. If you've got any questions, please contact me through the usual channels. Uh, signing off from Franchise Simply and the Franchise Radio Show. Looking forward to seeing you and being with you again when we have our next show.